Welcome back to Am I Famous Yet? Chapter 7. That's not a threat. That's a promise, Jack. So where was I? Oh yes. At 17 years old, off I went to Tulane University in New Orleans to major in biomedical engineering. I went to that school sight unseen. I haven't, hadn't even visited the town. I knew one important thing, however. New Orleans had the highest population of any of the cities where there were schools that I had accepted me. I needed a more cosmopolitan environment than Chattanooga if I had any hope of finding my way in the world. New Orleans won by default. At that age, I was too nascent a musician to have had academic aspirations yet in the field, but I did have the need to once again find a new source of free promotional records to feed my Jones. Since I had so much luck with radio stations back home, I immediately went down to the campus radio station WTUL to see if there was a possible vinyl hookup there. With the benefit of my high school drama experience, I started reading the news on the station within a week. I was subbing on overnight DJ shifts within a month, and I had my own regular show shortly after that. By that winter, I had become the station's music director. You know, the guy who auditions all of the promo records and gets to take some of the duplicates home as a perk of the job. I had found my new home. I remained music director of the station until I graduated. After a couple of years of engineering school, I noticed that all of my classmates were military ROTC. Once again, it was a crowd into which I did not fit. So I transferred into the psychology department where I got my undergraduate degree. I tell people that mainly I majored in college radio because immediately after school, I started working in the music industry. While in New Orleans, I also majored in the local music scene, studying at the unfortunately non-accredited Meters and Neville's, Neville Brothers University, Mardi Gras College, and Jazz Fest Academy. I got my first professional experience playing with local bands on and off campus at clubs including Tipitina's, Jimmy's, and even the Sanger Theater and the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. I played on my first recording sessions down there for the alternate country punk band Dash Rip Rock and the late, unfortunately obscure soul music legend Mighty Sam McLean. Mighty was an accurate and well-deserved moniker. He was really something to see and hear. He was also a great friend. I was also starting to learn about the dark side of the music business and human nature in general. New Orleans was a dangerous place in those days. I had a couple of friends die from being shot. One of them, my pal Ben, was an especially pointless tragedy. We had just started a band together called the Radical Shiite God Squad that was great. You could name a band like that in the 80s without worry of scrutiny by Homeland Security. Everyone in the band was young, eager, and exceptionally talented, the bass player accepted. We did a couple of initial gigs where the band was firing on all cylinders. It felt important, it felt great, it felt right. It felt like we were really onto something. One day, Ben got into an argument with his brother at their house. His brother grabbed a hunting rifle and shot Ben dead on the spot. Game over. End of Ben. End of band. End of hopes and aspirations. End of a very talented singer, guitar player, and songwriter. And over what? Nothing. We probably only did about two or three gigs total decades ago, but I still think about him every once in a while. I wonder what we could have become as a group. Mostly, I wonder what... Ben would have been able to contribute to the world in the 50 or 60 additional years he might have lived. We'll never know. During the same period at WTUL Radio, I started doing an overnight punk rock radio show with a couple of buddies we uninspiringly called The Hardcore Show. From 2 to 6 a.m., we would play punk and thrash records that weren't getting spun anywhere else on the air in New Orleans. 
I still hear from people to this day who listened to that show when they were in high school and were hugely influenced by it. We probably had tens of regular listeners, I don't know, maybe hundreds. But it was a tightly, tightly knit community, a fraternity of like-minded DIY punks and skaters that somehow felt like an extended family when we gathered at live shows of bands touring through town. Part of my gig at the radio station was to help promote these shows, play the records, and where possible get the artists to come down to the station for on-air interviews. I have souvenir autographed LPs from many of these interviews during this time from the Ramones, the Circle Jerks, the Butthole Servers, the Dead Kennedys, oi, what a combative interview. The Red Hot Chili Peppers, they were kind of punk funk initially, and even a band from LA called Tex and the Horseheads. Not quite what I would call punk, Tex and the Horseheads were more of a trashy, loud rock band with a bit of punk sensibility. Texacala Jones was their female lead singer, kind of a Madonna on meth type of character with smeared mascara and a torn crinoline dress. I liked them. I called the record label Enigma Records, which was also the Chili Peppers label at the time, to ask for an interview. I was told that since they were on tour without transportation other than their equipment van that was already parked at the venue, the only way this interview could happen was if I drove downtown to pick up the band myself and brought them to the radio station. For some reason, I agreed to this. When I got downtown and found the, found the band, the guitar player, Mike Mart, said jokingly that they would only do the interview if I would buy them beer. I just laughed and said something sarcastic like, yeah, right, come on, let's go. I drove them to the station. When we got there, one of the band dudes went directly to the campus bar. The legal drinking age was 18 in New Orleans at the time, but the practical, practical drinking age in New Orleans was old enough to see over the bar. Uh, what major university with any self-respect wouldn't have a full-service bar right there in the student center? Band dude came back with a six-pack of open beer bottles for the group to enjoy during their interview. They were rowdy, they were loud, they were punks, but we got it done and had some fun, and they even signed my souvenir Horseheads LP. As we finished up and were preparing to leave, Mike Mart says, Hey, you owe us $21 for the beer, and he was serious. I told him that I never agreed to that. I was in college. I didn't have any money other than what I made uh, as a part-time clerk at the record store for $3.35 an hour or whatever pittance it was. Plus, I was helping to promote and sell tickets to their gig by putting them on the air. I was just staring at him in disbelief. March started to get belligerent, grabbed his album back, and told me to fuck off and stormed off out of the station with the band. I was speechless. My mouth was open. Literally 20 seconds later, the whole band came back into the studio Mart was smiling. He's like, hey, man, I'm sorry. We still need a ride back downtown. I said, uh, just a minute, and walked out of the station. I got in my car and just drove away without them. Livid, perplexed, flummoxed. My brain could not process the audacity and nerve of what had just occurred. No good deed goes unpunished, it is said. Then the real fun began. This was before cell phones. Somehow the band got my home number, probably from someone else at the station who couldn't imagine why I might have stranded them there. This was during the time of cassette recording answering machines. Wow, did I have a few messages waiting for me when I got home. Texacala growling, the more people who say I act like an animal, I have people like you to thank for it. Click, buzz. Mike Mart, menacing. The next time I see you, you're going to the hospital. That's not a threat. That's a promise, Jack. Click, buzz. On it went in that vein. So now I was basically staying in for the night rather than risk attending the, their show or going anywhere else where I might encounter a group of aggrieved idiots from LA bent on kicking my ass to the point of needing medical intervention. Mart's local girlfriend du jour 
reiterated the threats to me as well as indicating that the incident had spread outside of the band and into the scene. It was not the result I anticipated when taking the initiative to help promote their concert. The Enigma Records representative called me the next day to cheerfully ask me how the interview went. She hadn't heard. I told her. The level of embarrassment over the phone was palpable. Shortly afterward, their label dropped them. I'm quite sure it was from lack of sales and interest, but I would uh, love to imagine that my anecdote played some tiny part in it. Three or four years later, I ended up moving to Los Angeles to work for Epic Records. One night I was going up the stairs at the Roxy as the one and only Mike Mart was coming down the other way. LA's a big town. What are the odds? I recognized him immediately, though he was now wearing some sort of hipster suit jacket with satin stripes and the sleeves rolled up instead of the Keith Richards wannabe getup he had on back in New Orleans. He saw me. We made eye contact. My guts jumped into my throat. My body tensed in anticipation of whatever, whatever confrontation was about to occur. But there was no look of recognition in his eyes, no acknowledgement. He walked right by me and off into the Southern California night. I've never been accused of having a forgettable face. Um, though the Horseheads did a national van tour, they didn't play that many shows and didn't even, did even fewer radio interviews. Was it the $21 worth of beer or drugs that clouded or erased his memory? I'll never know. Apparently he's in recovery now. I wish him well. Also during my New Orleans days, I got to play uh, my first chance to play with a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, the great Bo Diddley, uh, at a nightclub called Storyville in the French Quarter. To save money, Bo often used local pickup bands in each city in those days rather than traveling with his own musicians. I was dating the local booking agent for Bo's show at the time. Since nepotism is the way of the world, I called in the favor. Get me on the gig. I constantly maintain that I've slept my way to the bottom during my career. Even though I had next to zero real-world playing experience, I managed to get myself an audition with Charlie Brent, the great New Orleans guitarist who had been hired to be the local band leader. I would find out many, later, many years later that Charlie Brent used to be the music director for Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders out of Miami in the early 1970s, a band which included a very young kid on bass named Jaco Pastorius. Jocko credited Charlie publicly with, him teach, with teaching every, him everything he knew about arranging orchestration, skills which Jocko elevated to genius status and great fame. I knew who Jocko was and was a huge fan, but I didn't know anything about his connection to Charlie Brent, which was just as well. It would have just made me nervous in my audition. I only really knew uh, enough about music at the time to be able to play a 12-bar blues, though apparently with a decent enough feel. feel. One of the astounding things about Bo Diddley that most people don't realize is that most of his hits were one-chord songs. He had a couple of 12-bar blues forms in his catalog, but mostly there were absolutely no chord changes. There was no harmonic knowledge required to play his show as a pickup musician beyond these simple, easily observable facts. Bo played his signature cigar box guitar tuned to an open E chord. He used a capo for some songs. If there was no capo on the guitar, he was playing in the key of E. If the cable was on the third fret, he was in G. If it was on the fifth fret, he was in A. Here endeth the lesson. One of these, uh, out of these one chord songs, Bo would do a, a 90 minute show that was never boring, except maybe to the jazz pianist who was also hired for the gig, but that's another story. Bo was amazing. He was a force of nature. I've never seen anything like him before or since. The point of all this was not that Charlie Brent saw in me some budding talent along the lines of the astounding young Jocko. Clearly not. Charlie was faced with a uh, booking agent who had probably hired him and had asked him to give me a chance. 
He knew full well that anyone who basically owned a base and wasn't a total disaster on it would be able to cut Bo's gig. I was not a total disaster. I was hired. It was an amazing experience. Bo returned to New Orleans two more times in the next year or so. I was asked back to play with him each time. We rehearsed for about a half an hour before the first gig and then never again for the other shows. But the third gig, I felt that I wanted to have some souvenir from me playing with the great Bo Diddley. I had not yet mastered the art of the two-shot selfie back in those days. Photographs required cameras, film development, and printing. It's not like today, where everybody has a camera in their pocket. By now, I had taken in the landscape of the club, befriended the sound man, and noticed that he had a cassette deck on the soundboard. Since I was in radio at the time, the logical thing in my inexperienced mind was to bring a blank cassette to the gig and ask the sound man to record it for me. I would have my souvenir. Another fascinating thing about Bo was that he had a lot of bad experiences with bootleg recordings being released where he was not compensated. He was aware enough of this to show me a special feature he had actually built into his custom-made guitar from the first time I met him. He had taken a bunch of usually floor-mounted effects pedals and given them to the luthier with the instructions to put them all into the guitar. Needless to say, this guitar had a lot of knobs on it. It must have weighed a ton. One knob he showed me seemed to do nothing but emit a shrill, high-frequency whistle. He said this was the anti-bootleg knob. He said that when the illegal record producers heard that sound, they would think that the recording was bad and would be unable to release it. This should have been a clue to me not to ask the sound man for a souvenir board tape. Apparently, I had forgotten about this knob by the third gig a year later, or, and or had been too anxious to have the souvenir recording to have taken this hint that it would be a pretty bad idea. I didn't ask anyone for permission. I just asked the sound guy to tape the show on the down low. He did. I gave him two blank cassettes, uh, one for each set that night. At the end of the show, I went to the sound guy to get my tapes. He said there had been some problem with the soundboard during the first show, so he had recorded the second set on the same cassette, taping over the first flawed recording. He gave me back two tapes, one still blank, and one with just the second show on it. I got paid my $100 for the gig, or whatever astronomical sum they were paying me, and went home, thrilled to have my own personal bootleg souvenir. I never had any, any intention of selling it or to play it for anyone. Uh, it was like having a trophy, or so I thought. When I got home quite late, probably 2 a.m., I started listening to the tape. The tape had all of the band recorded on it, but somehow no vocals at all. How the idiot sound guy managed to do this is beyond me. I was listening to a bizarre 90-minute one-chord jam that made no sense at all and had no evidence of it being Bo Diddley or anyone else for that matter. I was crestfallen but resigned to my fate. But then the phone rang. It was the club owner. He asked me if I taped the show that night. Stunned that he knew this, I stupidly said yes. He said in a very stern tone to get into a cab immediately and bring the tape back to the club because Bo knew about it and was livid. For some inexplicable reason, I decided to comply with this order and took a cab ride that I could ill afford back down to the French Quarter in the middle of the night to return this bootleg and to apologize. When I got there, Bo was still there with the club owner. The club was otherwise empty of patrons, just the porters were cleaning the room since it was after hours. I returned the one tape to Bo and said I was sorry. Bo said, where's the other one? There were two shows. I explained what I had been told by the sound man, sound man who was no longer on the premises to back me up. Needless to say, Bo was skeptical. It turned out that Bo had also given the sound man two blank cassette tapes that night that he wanted back, 
mainly to prevent the cassette deck from being used to make a bootleg recording of the show. You know, exactly as I had done. Bo uh, was neither given a recording of the show nor even his blank tapes back. How the idiot salad guy managed to A, honor my request over that of the actual artist, and B, then provide me with only one tape instead of two that contained no vocal whatsoever remained mysteries to me as intangible as the existence of Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster. At this point, the club owner beckoned to me to follow him, follow him into the kitchen saying, let me talk to you for a second. Again, for some reason, I, com I complied. Once out of Bo's earshot, the club owner began to explain to me his position, which was basically this. If you're lying to me about this tape, and furthermore, if you don't go out there and convince Bo right this second that you're telling the truth, I will murder you. I will shoot you dead and burn this club to the ground so no one finds your body. Though no actual firearm was brandished, the setting and his tone let me know that this was a serious threat. Shaking and pale with fear, I returned to the presence of the great but understandably disgruntled Bo Diddley, whereupon I immediately burst into uncontrollable tears, heaving sobs that can only be described as a bona fide ugly cry. I once again repeated my story, which happened to be the absolute truth about there only being one tape, I swear, I swear, etc., etc in that unintelligible wail between gasping breaths and with a streaming, snotty face. It must have been quite a show because Bo accepted the story. I was allowed to depart and take a second uh, expensive cab ride home, relieved that I had somehow escaped with my life, if indeed not my dignity fully intact. The next year, my friend James interviewed Bo for the local New Orleans music magazine, Wavelength. James happened to mention to Bo that he knew me and that he knew that I had played with him, to which Bo responded, I still love him. I guess he believed my literal sob story, but my tenure in his band had come to an unceremonious end. To be fair, so had everyone else's from the last three gigs. His fourth trip to New Orleans involved a completely different pickup band and nightclub. Decades later, I passed Bo in an airport somewhere. It was the type of seemingly random road encounter that happens occasionally to touring musicians. He showed no recognition of me. Why should he? I was just another in an infinite line of pickup musicians that he encountered over his 60-plus year career. I waved to him as he passed me on the moving sidewalk. He merely addressed, addressed the obvious group of musicians I happened to be standing with that day by nodding his head and saying, not uncordially, fellas. Fellas.